0: Hey, everybody, Stephen here. I am so excited to share a new podcast that our production team has been working on over the last few months in collaboration with Google. It's a six-part series called Where the Internet Lives, and it's all about the hidden and fascinating world of data centers. Most of the stuff we do on our phones and computers isn't actually taking place on those devices anymore. They're just windows into these warehouse-sized computers that are all over the world. These are the homes of the internet and they've democratized supercomputing. In this series, we go inside these massive Google campuses to learn how they're built, how the technology works, how they're networked, how they're operated, and how they're protected. And in this episode, which we're about to play for you, we go deep into how Google is trying to get 24-7 clean energy for its data centers, matching every bit and byte with a zero carbon electron in real time. It's a sign of just how far things have come in the world of clean energy, an example of all the trends we talk about every week on The Energy Gang. I learned so much working as executive producer on this series, and if you like what you hear, go listen to the other five episodes of Where the Internet Lives. You can get all the subscription links in the show notes, or just search for Where the Internet Lives on the podcast app of your choice. Enjoy the episode. In the early
1: 90s, stickers started showing up on new appliances, like computers, refrigerators, and washing machines. They were labels showing how much energy a product consumes. John Kumi was working on the American version of this label, called Energy Star. It was a fairly new program at the time, and John, who would later teach at Stanford, was working for a government lab crunching data on the energy use of personal computers, which were becoming ubiquitous in schools, offices, and homes.
2: And so there were a lot of people who were very excited by the prospects for the internet and e-commerce and all those other interesting developments. And so uh, people started to really try to understand what was happening in the electricity used by computers and, and in data centers specifically.
1: John was soon encouraged to expand the scope of his research, to look not just at personal computers but also the much larger machines that run the internet.
2: And back in the 90s, there was this uh, factoid, which was that the internet doubles every 100 days. And that was something that captured the imagination of a lot of people during the tech boom.
1: Curiosity turned to concern. A couple other researchers who worked for the energy industry started making an extraordinary claim that the internet would use half of global electricity within a decade.
2: The idea that a particular end use could use half of all electricity and grow to that amount in ten years is pretty hard to believe. There were a lot of other associated claims. The same guys, you know, would hold up a wireless palm pilot and say the networking behind that palm pilot was, you know, as much as a refri- electricity use as a refrigerator. There were people making claims about data center electricity use as well. What tended to happen was that people would take a specific example out of context, in in other words, cherry-picking, and then they would try to apply that to all data centers. But there's very little good data around. And my interest is always in getting the data to understand what's actually happening.
1: To get that data, John teamed up with a grad student and AT&T's then-director for the environment. They wanted to do something that hadn't been done before by independent researchers— to go inside a data center to measure energy use. AT&T let them in.
2: The thing that was important is that we actually had access to the facility. And that's the limit for most of these kind of studies is that you don't have access. And most data center operators are very leery of releasing any sort of data to the world.
1: And when they actually got inside, they talked with the facility manager, they looked over the blueprints, and they surveyed the energy systems. And they found a discrepancy, a big one.
2: Well, the aha moment was the power use in the facility was 25 watts a square foot instead of 300, which is what some people were claiming.
1: John got data from another researcher that backed up these findings. The results were peer-reviewed, and they discovered that data center electricity use wasn't as high as people thought.
2: It was an indication that people were overestimating.
1: John kept researching data centers, and in the mid-2000s, he published a landmark analysis of their overall energy footprint. He found that although the industry's power use was not as astronomical as some people believed, it was growing really fast.
2: In the 2000 to 2005 period, data center electricity use in the United States doubled. So there was a period, so right after the first tech boom and bust, there was this period of very rapid growth, you know, eventually got to about 2% of U.S. electricity use in 2005 or so.
1: So 2% was far lower than the double-digit projections floated in the late 90s, but it's still a lot of energy. 2% of America's yearly electricity use works out to about the entire state of Wisconsin. And that was just in the US. Data centers were popping up around the world. And John's research showed that even with efficiency improvements, the internet's electricity use globally could double again by 2010.
2: And so there was real concern in the industry because obviously doubling in five years is, is pretty fast growth. And so the industry actually started taking things a lot more seriously as they realized just how fast things were growing.
1: This was a crucial moment in the data center world. It sparked a worldwide revolution in computing efficiency and design, and it pushed companies to eliminate carbon emissions from an enterprise that fundamentally depends on electricity.
2: You know, it's it's surprising when you explain it to people, they say, ah, interesting, but, We understand now why that happened. This
1: is Where the Internet Lives, a podcast from Google about the unseen world of data centers. I'm Barry Fisher, I'm a data storyteller at Google, and I'm your guide through the physical places that make the Internet run, places that very few people get to see firsthand. So far in this series, we've heard about how data centers are designed, how they connect with each other to answer Google searches in milliseconds, and how they're built out in real communities. In this episode, powering data centers in a world confronting the threat of climate change. In September of 2020, Google CEO Sundar Pichai unveiled one of the company's most ambitious goals to
0: date. Today, I'm proud to announce that we intend to become the first major company to operate carbon-free 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year.
1: 24-7 carbon-free energy is probably a new phrase for you because, well, it's a pretty new phrase for everyone. Simply put, it means running data centers on clean electricity everywhere in every hour of every day. Not long ago, this kind of target would have seemed fantastical even impossible. So how did a global internet company with a constant need for electricity to run large-scale computers get to a point where it could reasonably slash all its carbon emissions within a decade? Well, that's a big question. And to answer it, we'll have to go back in time. I heard that your unofficial title was once Captain of the Earthly Elements.
3: (laughs) You know, I did consider um, using the title Captain Planet, but I felt that I wasn't sure I could live up to the cartoon superhero's uh, accomplishments, if you will.
1: (laughs) Winnie Lamb has worked in many environmental roles at Google. Most recently, she was a director of energy for Google Cloud. And armed with artificial intelligence and a global network of warehouse-scale computers, she's done stuff that would even make Captain Planet jealous. What is something that would wow a person about the work you've done?
3: One thing that wows people is just... Holy crap, using computer vision and AI to derive things that we cannot otherwise do is super cool. So for instance, how can we use computer vision to detect that a wind turbine's broken or that a power line is at risk of starting a fire? And I think if you watch a demo of what might be possible, it is super freaking cool.
1: Winnie has been working to minimize the company's environmental impact for more than a decade. She's teamed up with a bunch of technical experts to manage data centers, water use, and energy consumption.
3: And it dawned on me that my team and I are working on all the classical elements, earth, air, fire, and water. So that's the title, Captain of the Earthly Elements.
1: Winnie didn't always work on such whiz-bang projects. Her path to earning that title started around 2006, the same time that Google began its quest to become a carbon-free company. That year, Google installed more than 9,000 solar panels on rooftops across its Mountain View campus. It was the biggest project of its kind at that time. And Winnie, an engineer and an energy nerd, wanted to figure out how to maximize the production of solar energy. So she did some digging as a side project.
3: And literally, we just collaborated. They gave me the data. I ran all kinds of analyses on them, slicing and dicing the data by wind direction, by the tilt of the solar panels, where exactly they were installed, and a whole bunch of variables to figure out how we can get more energy out of them. And we discovered a way to double the amount of energy from those solar panels overnight.
1: Her big discovery? Well, it turned out that the solar panels just needed to be washed more often.
3: And so I think that example shows you just how scrappy and how we were looking at various ways to um, to optimize things. It was sort of like a, an early pioneer stage.
1: Winnie's number crunching approach to solar made her think more about how advanced computing could be a solution to climate change. And she was on to something. Today, cloud computing, machine learning, and artificial intelligence are being used for big things in the climate world. They can predict flooding in India and Bangladesh, measure emissions from power plants. They can find the best rooftops to put solar panels and help the electric grid integrate more wind power.
3: And what I see now is that there's way more sophistication in the way that we do data analytics, and we're also able to apply much more sophisticated methods like using AI to achieve energy efficiency. I think a lot is still yet to come, and I think that technology is enabling us to discover some of those possibilities.
1: But in the early days, it wasn't obvious that large-scale computing would solve environmental problems. That's because data centers and their rapidly growing energy use were emerging as potential climate challenges in their own right. Independent researcher John Kumi anticipated that internet electricity use could double by 2010. And without reining in that energy consumption, all the future innovations from cloud computing, the stuff that Winnie eventually worked on, would be more expensive and less clean.
2: And by you know, 2006 or so, there was real pressure... Both from outside the industry and, and as well as inside the industry to do something about data center electricity use.
1: It was also a time of awakening on climate change. Hurricane Katrina had recently devastated much of New Orleans. Al Gore released his climate change documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. Meanwhile, United Nations climate reports got more dire, and investors started pouring billions of dollars into a new and promising category clean tech. When Google invested in that first rooftop solar system, it was out of recognition that the energy paradigm needed to shift.
3: Back at that time, it was really a huge game changer that Google would invest so early in terms of the maturity cycle of solar Uh, Energy And the intent there was really to demonstrate to the world how it can be done and that it is possible not only technologically, but also economically feasible. Um, And and that was one of the key reasons for why Google embarked on that journey um, back in the day.
1: The question then became, how do you scale clean energy from a single rooftop solar project to millions of solar panels and wind turbines, enough to keep the whole Internet humming? For Google, it meant going on a clean energy buying spree. And that's where people like Neha Palmer came in. She'd been working at one of America's biggest utilities, negotiating contracts to bring new renewable energy projects online in California. Google needed more experts like her to ramp up clean electricity for data centers.
4: So it was a really easy transition going from buying large scale amounts of power for the utility to doing that for Google.
1: But she was still stunned by the scale of what those data centers required.
4: Yeah, I, uh, I have really long hair, so I love the hairdryer analogy.
1: The smallest data centers use as much power as thousands of hairdryers all operating at once.
4: Now, Google has what we call hyperscale data centers, which are very, very large data centers, some of the biggest ones in the world. If you think of it in the hairdryer context, you end up with 200,000 hairdryers going full blast all at once. Um, think about the noise, but also think about how much electricity that's probably pulling.
1: 200,000 hair dryers would make for a very big, very warm salon. In the places around the world where Google has a data center, it's often the largest electricity consumer in town. In 2012, when Neha started buying renewable energy for Google's operations, it was still a bespoke process. Traditional power companies didn't have the experience with the volume of wind and solar that Google was seeking.
4: When I started this job, we would ask for renewable energy and some suppliers would flat out refuse. And now we go into even very small utility, and they have an idea of what we're looking for, and they'll actually have a term sheet that lays out pretty much what we're looking for. It's kind of become industry standard.
1: Wind and solar are now cheaper than any other resource in many areas of the world. The cost of wind power has fallen 70% since 2009, while the cost of solar has fallen almost 90%. Just like with computer chips, higher production volumes create lower costs. And as clean energy has gone mainstream, sought out by companies from grocery chains to coffee houses to tech firms, the cost has declined.
4: I had a conversation with a major developer, wind and solar, last week, and we were talking about prices for projects that would start next year. And I heard prices that were lower than I'd ever heard in my entire life. And it wasn't like the developer was saying, and I got a deal for you. It basically was that price of power. This is what it costs to build in this market. I have to say my jaw almost dropped when I heard the prices.
1: Corporate purchasing of renewable power by Google and others drove more than 10% of all renewable energy capacity added globally in 2019. Today, Google is, in fact, the world's largest corporate purchaser of clean energy, with projects from Chile to South Dakota to Taiwan. Here's John Kumi again.
2: And again, Google has been a leader in this. Facebook, Microsoft, um, they've all been signing power purchase agreements for renewable power that would not have been constructed otherwise to power their data centers.
1: In the U.S., solar and wind are getting built at higher volumes than any other resource, including natural gas. And this year, for the first time ever, Americans will use more electricity created from renewables than from coal. Similarly, across Europe, renewable energy surpassed fossil fuels on the power grid in 2020 for the first time. Solar is now so cheap that Google is buying 160 megawatts of it for a data center in Denmark a country not exactly known as a sunny vacation spot. There are five different solar farms in the mix, and one of them is actually Denmark's first solar plant to get zero subsidies from the government.
5: The fact of having those uh, low costs allows you to get to profitable projects, and that's why solar is uh, happening in Denmark and in other countries.
1: Enoa Onda is a senior lead for Google's energy portfolio in Europe. She played a key role in a $2 billion package of wind and solar deals around the world in 2019. Buying enough wind and solar power to match energy demand at Google data centers worldwide is a tall order. And as the need for computing has grown in recent years, the company hired someone who helped write the sustainability playbook for another large energy consumer, the U.S. government.
6: So I I had the honor of serving uh, in the Obama White House as the federal chief sustainability officer before I came to Google about five years ago. So it was truly a tremendous opportunity to drive impact at scale.
1: The federal government operates more than 350,000 buildings and 600,000 vehicles, which means it buys an astonishing amount of energy and it creates a lot of emissions too. Kate's job was to clean up this sprawling operation.
6: So electrifying the federal fleet was a huge opportunity we identified. And then, of course, continuing to green our buildings. So that was really how we looked at it. You know, it was what were we really uniquely positioned to do um, through our size, through our buying power uh, and setting, setting some bold goals.
1: Kate took her familiarity with scale and found ways to apply it at Google data centers. She helped manage water use, get equipment suppliers to clean up their operations, and use circular economy principles to recycle and resell used hardware. With her guidance, by 2019, Google was diverting close to 90% of data center waste streams away from landfills. And of course, she was also supporting Neha's energy team and dozens more creative Googlers, as they found ways to buy enough wind and solar to make sure that every Google search, email, and map route had zero carbon footprint.
6: Energy use at data centers is certainly kind of the the Uber problem that Google has been thinking about for many years. And running our business requires us to use a lot of power. And the urgency of climate change requires us to transition to a clean energy economy.
1: Adding clean energy to grids was only half of Google's strategy for making that transition. While Neha and her team were working on buying renewables, another group of people was working hard at making data centers more energy efficient. A lot of the early data centers or computer rooms required super intense cooling systems.
2: I actually have a vivid memory.
1: John Kumi remembers seeing one of these rooms way back in the 70s when he visited his dad's office building.
2: They had a computer room. And so as a teenager, I got to go in the computer room and check it out. And I remember the, there was the air was flowing under the floor. And they had these panels and they would lift the panels and there was a massive blast of cold air coming up. Uh, it was very loud and, and frigid.
1: This is exactly what Luis Bajoso talked about in episode two.
5: You know, if you're a data center technician in the 80s, you were wearing a very thick sweater at all times because the temperature is like, you know, 58 degrees. In our new data centers, as it still is the case today, a T-shirt will suffice.
1: To address cooling, Google engineers threw out the idea that the whole server facility needed to be chilled to brisk temperatures. Winnie Lam explains.
3: Google has put a lot of effort into that area over the years in terms of the way that we design for cooling, the way that we isolate the hot aisles from the cold aisles.
1: Some of the innovation came through old-fashioned mechanical design, but a lot of it came through software and system optimization. In 2018, one data center engineer created a machine learning algorithm that slashed cooling loads by double digits. Here's Kate Brandt
6: again. AI-powered efficiency recommendation system, and it ingested all this data we had, you know, power, temperature, pump speeds, from how the cooling system worked.
1: All that information was fed to neural networks, which learned how to operate the mechanical systems much more efficiently.
6: And something amazing happened. We saw a 30% increase in efficiency in the cooling system in the data center. And this is something you know people have been working on for years is driving deeper efficiency in the data centers. These were not like old industrial systems. These like very highly optimized systems and yet still saw this 30% increase
3: in efficiency.
1: Teams of engineers also focused on how to make the servers themselves more efficient, to squeeze more computation out of each machine.
3: The other aspects, too, is the efficiency of doing the same task. Um, And this is something that we don't often talk about. But um, if you imagine how much energy it takes to, let's say, answer a Google search query, we can become more efficient over time.
1: In the early years, energy consumption of an idle server could be as high as its usage at max processing. There was an industry-wide push to change that.
2: Intel and AMD and and others working in this area figured out how to get the server to power down when it was idle. Some of these servers now, at idle, they only used 20% of the maximum power instead of 90%. And that's pretty important when a lot of servers are idle.
1: And then there was a focus on utilizing servers as much as possible. One way to do that is to virtualize the machine.
2: And a virtualized computer means I have a physical device, a server, and on that server, I can run multiple instances of an operating system. So it's almost like I have 10 or 20 or 50 different computing loads running on one physical device. It allows you to keep utilization very high, which as we talked about, reduces the energy use and the emissions per computation.
1: Remember back in the mid-2000s when John's research showed that energy use at U.S. data centers could double by 2010? Well, that didn't happen. It grew by only half of what he'd originally predicted. And over another eight-year period, efficiency got even better. Between 2010 and 2018, as overall computing and data centers grew by 550 percent, John and a team of researchers found that data center energy use only increased by 6 percent.
2: We compiled the latest data to try to understand from 2010 to 2018 just how data center electricity use changed. And what we found that computing performance or computing output went up by a factor of five or so. But electricity use stayed basically flat, which I think is surprising to a lot of people. Data centers as a whole only use about 1% of the world's electricity. So that combined with relatively flat electricity use in spite of increasing computing loads says we've been able to vastly improve the efficiency of data center computing in the last eight years.
1: In 2019, Google reported that, compared with five years before, its data centers delivered around seven times as much computing power, with the same amount of electrical power. And all this renewable energy and all these efficiency improvements added up to a big moment. In 2017, for the first time, Google actually bought enough wind and solar energy to match its total electricity use worldwide. It did it again in 2018, and again in 2019. But the energy experts like Kate Brandt and Neha Palmer looked around and said, this isn't enough.
4: You know, it actually began when we realized that we were going to hit that 100% renewable goal. We've had this goal out there five years, fairly quickly, that we were able to achieve it. And we were on the cusp of being able to announce that we had made it. And we realized that we still had a lot to do. We've bought all of this wind. We've bought all of the solar. But at the end of the day, we're still pulling off a carbon-intense grid.
1: So why is this the case? Well, it's a simple matter of accounting.
2: You would say, I'm, my data center is gonna use uh, X million uh, kilowatt hours per year, and I'm gonna build a wind farm that will generate X million kilowatt hours per year. Those two things are equal over the course of the year. I'm 100% renewable.
1: But the reality is that the sun and wind operate on their own schedules, and they're more prevalent in some places than others. For example, on an incredibly windy day in Finland, power production from Google's local wind projects may exceed the amount of energy that the nearby data center needs. Meanwhile, another data center halfway around the world may be connected to a grid that's dominated by fossil
4: fuels. If you think about it, when you have a solar plant, it produces during the day, but at nighttime, there's no solar energy. We actually have to pull power off of the grid. And so by doing that, we're actually still consuming carbon-based resources of energy. Our goal is that for every hour of the year, we're able to match our consumption with production of carbon-free energy.
2: Now, because of the complexity of wanting to reduce emissions all the time, people are starting to think, well, how can we have renewable power 100% of the year, hour by hour? And that's kind of the next frontier where things are going.
1: So the energy teams at Google started thinking about their mission in a completely different way.
4: For us to be confident to tell a consumer, you are running on renewable energy, we will have to achieve that carbon-free energy goal. And so that would be making sure that we are producing energy in real time that matches our actual consumption.
1: That means matching every bit and every byte, every search and every payment, every translation happening in its data centers to a zero carbon electron. Again, here's Enoa
5: Anda. So the real ambition is to to try to reach uh, carbon-free energy all, uh, every single hour of a day, every day of a year. So all the times. It's not just about time though.
1: It's also about location. everywhere on the planet where there's a warehouse of Google computers. That means figuring out how to support new clean energy in Taiwan and Singapore, where the grids are mostly fossil fuels. Or in Nevada, pairing huge solar fields in the desert with equally impressive batteries or in Belgium, buying power from offshore wind turbines in the middle of the North Sea, or even scaling up novel solutions like advanced nuclear reactors, enhanced geothermal power, or facilities that pull carbon dioxide straight out of the air. The goal itself was not immediately clear. When Neha's team reached 100% renewable energy, there was disagreement about what to do next.
4: Yeah, a lot of debate, a lot of debate around that. So I think some people felt like, look, the 100% goal is fantastic. That should be the goal. Others were saying, well, we still haven't achieved what our real goal is, which is zero carbon, right, in our in our energy system. So I think there was a lot of debate on what we can do as a company and what was actually realistic. And I think we realized when we talk about 24 by 7 carbon-free energy, it is a really difficult goal.
1: It meant drawing an entirely different roadmap. The team would need to continue buying a lot of wind and solar, but also build or invest in totally new kinds of technologies, develop new approaches to buying and selling power, and advocate for policies that accelerate carbon-free solutions. And part of that process was tapping minds across Google who could ask new questions.
5: What can we do to actually have more intelligent load? Can we be more proactive? Can we respond to the generation mix on the grid? People like Anurad Ivanovich,
1: a research scientist at Google who had expertise in machine learning and a passion for changing the energy system.
5: You know, I saw that uh, energy field was very, very traditional still. On the other hand, I saw so many opportunities to create an impact and disconnection between the information technology world and physical world of energy. Anna started at Google in 2010, optimizing ad campaigns.
1: But she wanted to apply her engineering expertise to climate change. So she migrated to different teams over the years, designing software to manage microgrids and building models of energy
5: markets. We needed to study energy systems, systems design, control, communication systems, electromagnetics, signal processing. So this is all part of electrical engineering sciences.
1: Although not every project resulted in a paradigm-shifting success, it created a lot of institutional knowledge about energy inside Google.
5: I think that we learned a huge amount of things, especially that we do have all the technical capabilities.
1: Anna realized that many of the energy and computing tools necessary to decarbonize the planet are already available. She just had to put them together in the right way. And then in 2016, she joined the team working on data center efficiency, and her group stumbled onto something promising.
5: And I thought, wow, this is too simple of
1: an idea. This is already in a way available. Honest team was writing a paper on how renewable energy affected the price of electricity. They created a model to match grid conditions with pricing. And as they were looking at forecasts of the energy mix, they realized they had powerful data on how clean or dirty the grid was at any given moment.
5: So I was thinking, what can we do with this carbon intensity?
1: They also knew that Google kept meticulous records of computation resources. That is, they had data on how much processing the servers were handling at any one time.
5: Wow, we have compute load. We can directly know because we log everything at Google right? All the workload, all the processes we log. So why couldn't we actually map it to power and map it to carbon footprint in real time?
1: Which led her team to another question, a radical
5: question. Is it possible at all to bend, shape Google load?
1: What Anna means by bending load is actually changing how much computation Google is running at any moment.
5: What we want to do is we want to move the energy usage from our data centers to we want to shift some of them to move it from the carbon intensive times, from the times of the day when we have a large amount of emissions on the grid to times of the day when we typically have lower emission because we have more renewable generation or more hydro or more some clean energy on the grid. So in order to do that, we need to see what type of workload we can move to these low-carbon times.
1: They didn't just have data on how much computation the servers were handling. The data also told them what kinds of jobs they were running. Streaming a YouTube video? That had to happen immediately. Running a Google Cloud customer's workload, that also needed to happen right away. But there were other compute jobs, things like creating fun new filters for Google Photos or adding slang words to Google Translate that could be shifted by a few hours without impacting users.
3: And
5: when we analyze the data, we look at these, what you say, compute tasks. And computing tasks, some of them are latency tolerant. Some of them, for example, most of the machine learning training jobs, they can be delayed for an hour or two. It's not super important that they are streamlined and they are streaming workloads similar to the one when which you, when you watch the video stream on the web. So it's not that type of workload. So when we analyzed our computing tasks and how much resources that use, we learned that a significant fraction of the total compute resources that we need to support our workloads goes to this flexible load. That was a huge promise, right?
1: It wasn't just promising, it was necessary. Hitting the 24-7 goal will in part require shifting load to times of day when the electric grid is cleaner.
5: So the goal of 24-7 project is to align our load to carbon-free generation at local grid. This is practically impossible if we don't shape the load. The
1: concept that Anna is describing is not actually new. It's called demand response, and big energy users like grocery stores, office buildings, and factories have done it for years. They basically reduce their energy demand at certain times of day, say by turning down the air conditioner by a degree. And this reduces strain on the grid, it avoids the need to turn on more power plants, and it saves money. It also reduces emissions.
4: So demand response has been around for a long time. I think the way that Google is going about it, though, is pretty unique. Uh, Data centers are growing load. There are a huge amount of load in any single location. And being able to think about what we call carbon-aware computing is a huge shift in how people have thought about data centers for a very long time.
1: Compared to a grocery store, a fleet of data centers requires an intricate dance of shifting load to match real-time conditions on the grid. It's incredibly complicated, but Anna dug in, knowing it could be a key to decarbonizing the digital economy.
5: It was extremely important. Um, it was in 2018, and I knew we need to finish as fast as possible. I'm ve- I was very driven because I know we don't have much time, and. Uh, I, no matter what the obstacles were along the process, I was extremely motivated to deliver as soon as possible. So throughout this challenging time, I, I can tell you, I, I was telling myself the goal is important, doesn't matter. You know, wh- whoever says this is not possible or, you know, this is, you know, ridiculous, I didn't listen. I was just really like motivated by the end goal.
1: Carbon-aware computing was rolled out publicly in April of 2020. Google is still perfecting it, but Ana hopes it can help other data center operators too.
5: There is nothing that we fundamentally changed in how we run our data centers uh, by this project. So everything, the technology that we have is sufficient. Uh, So people and other players in the market, other data centers, I'm sure that they actually have the levers to control the load. There is so much technology around, but we just need to use it in in the right way.
1: By mid-2020, all the elements were coming together. Incredibly cheap renewable energy, radical improvements in efficiency, higher density batteries, green hydrogen, or novel types of nuclear and geothermal plants. And this all added up to a fundamentally new energy paradigm. For the first time, Google was able to put a firm date on its 24-7 carbon-free aspiration. By 2030, the company announced, it would aim to operate without any fossil fuels. Again, here's Google CEO Sundar Pichai explaining what's at stake.
0: The science is clear. We have until 2030 to chart a sustainable course for our planet or face the worst consequences of climate change. We are already feeling those impacts today from historic wildfires in the U.S. to devastating flooding in many parts of the world. At Google, we've always viewed a challenge as an opportunity to be helpful and make things better for everyone. Climate change is no different.
1: The next decade is vital to preventing catastrophic climate change and creating millions of jobs in the process. And it's why people like Kate Brandt go to work every day, trying to figure out how to harness technology and talent into solving this challenge.
6: You know, science tells us um, very clearly that we have roughly a decade here, this decisive decade of the 2020s. Um, To make a huge shift in our relationship to natural resources and the amount of carbon we're emitting into the atmosphere. And if we don't do that, then we will have irreversibly damaged the planet uh, for generations to come for our kids and their kids. And to me, that is obviously daunting and upsetting, but also incredibly motivating and, and truly gets me out of bed every day. Um, I think now is the time for all of us to take action on climate and, you know, more broadly to reimagine our relationship to natural resources and how we use them across the economy. And I'm incredibly inspired by that opportunity and by the amazing people I get to work with every day on, you know, how do we think at a system scale about tackling those challenges and how do we deploy Google technology in the service of this critical mission.
1: And this brings us back to Winnie Lamb who was exploring how to optimize Google's rooftop solar system back in 2006. Back then, she was unsure what the limitations or possibilities even were. Today, she's working with the biggest energy companies in the world.
3: I think that the types of optimizations that we see possible and that are being adopted by the early adopters are also obviously different today than they were 10 years ago. Looking at pictures taken from drones or satellite imagery— inspecting power lines to see, hey, how close are they to, you know, a bunch of trees? If let's say we have a 90th percentile windstorm or an ice storm, or some sort of weather event, is that gonna pose a problem to the power lines? And so I think those are some of the wow factors.
1: And now that the computing systems behind that artificial intelligence are getting cleaner by the hour, it helps others easily lower the carbon emissions of their own digital operations.
3: It's modernizing enterprises' technology. It's things like moving technology from, let's say, an on-premise data center to cloud computing. The public cloud, like Google Cloud, for instance, tends to run way more energy-efficient data centers than an on-premise data center. And by having those energy savings, we're making a real difference.
1: In short, as more people and organizations move to the cloud, they're increasingly tapping into round-the-clock, zero-carbon energy. It sounds new and cutting-edge, and it is. But the underlying concept is rooted deep in history. John Kumi explains.
2: In the economics literature, there's a thing called the general purpose technology. And the old old example was always the steam engine. And by general purpose technology, it's something that has broad and deep implications for the whole structure of the society as you use more of the technology.
1: So John's talking about things like fire, wheels and factories, cars, the steam engine— These all single-handedly transformed our economies, and today, data centers are emerging as a 24-7 general-purpose technology of the post-carbon era.
2: Well, computing is probably the most powerful general-purpose technology that has ever existed. And we can use it in ways that we never could before to move bits instead of moving atoms, to redesign devices, to redesign institutions, and to help us make decisions more effectively than we ever could before. And to me, that's the most important thing about all of this, is that electricity use is modest, it's getting efficient very rapidly, and it's allowing us to do things that will help us create a low emission society. And that's
1: our show, Where the Internet Lives, is produced by PostScript Audio in collaboration with Google. Our theme music and scoring are by Echo Finch. You can subscribe to the show on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you get podcasts. And please give us a rating if you're enjoying our journey together so far. In this episode, you heard from John Kumi, Winnie Lamb, Neha Palmer, Kate Brandt, Noah Onda, and Anna Ranavadovich. Thanks to Anna for practicing a little energy conservation of her own during our interview.
5: Actually, I hear my machine, uh, laundry machine, on. I'm going to turn it, pause it, so because I don't okay. want any any noise. Okay, thanks.
1: Coming up in future episodes: Why data centers are perfect for hiding out during the zombie apocalypse, and then what will the future of data centers look like when Moore's law ends and quantum computing goes mainstream? I'm Barry Fisher. Thanks for listening.